Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Late on a Friday afternoon, uh, when everyone is heading out the door, but we need to make sure that we get our podcast into your hands. Time for cocktail hour, or at least in time for your coffee uh, on Saturday morning. So, hello, John. We had a big, big week of news today, uh, this week rather, and we have another big week coming up. Um, So we took a couple of topics that we want to drill down into a little bit for our podcast listeners. Um, Two interesting things. One story that you did today uh, on the Dungeness crab fishery. Now, crab is one of those—it's uh, one of those topics that sort of flies under the radar. It's not—it's not a product that's traded to the same activity as salmon all over the world. Um, but it is a product that everyone knows, everyone's aware of. It has a certain cachet when you are served crab. People tend to think that this is kind of a special, uh, special thing. Um, and there have been some severe supply issues heading into this, uh, this year that's really impacting the U.S. market. Um, and, uh, and we're going to discuss climate change in a moment because that factors into the supply issues. But John, first, just tell us about uh, the Dungeness crab fishery. Um, it's here on the west coast of the United States. Um, popular crab, but certainly not as well known as, say, king crab. But because we have a shortage of king crab this year, Dungeness is going through the roof. Tell us about it. Well, it's 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 lucky that it's been a really good season uh, uh, off the West Coast, particularly Oregon, which tends to be the leader in Dungeness crab harvesting. Um, you know, along the West Coast, they do fish in Washington, and they do fish in California as well. But Oregon tends to uh, be out in front. Anyway, so this season, uh, the season is just eight weeks in, and they've already surpassed uh, the record um, uh, for ex vessel value uh, for crab landings, and that they're at 74.5 million surpassing the old record of 74.2 in the 27-2018 season but that was for the entire season there this is only eight weeks in so the season runs uh through august Uh, and although most of it is caught in this first eight weeks there's still going to be more catch um you know between now and when it closes so that number that's 74 million number is gonna is gonna rise even further fishermen they're they're getting paid an average of just over five bucks a pound and that's really really good and um i think you know the point you were making that you know we have no red uh, bristol bay uh, king crab fishery this year uh the opelio quota in alaska uh, that's snow crab has been cut uh almost 90%. So there's a lot less crab in general in the market. And it's it's a market that really wants crab. I, I, I was shocked to see some of these figures, but, um, you know, retail scan data um, from, uh, two, two, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 210 Analytics, which uh, looks at the IRI scan data and compiles information uh, on seafood and, and other things. In 2021, 
uh, fresh crab sales, and that's all crab, exceeded uh, $1.24 billion in the U.S. retail segment. That's 59% higher than the same time, uh, same sales in 2019 before the pandemic. So the point being that shellfish in general, but crab specifically, has done really well since the onset of the pandemic. I have some theories on that, but and just in general, that's that's the case. So I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit to Bristol Bay uh, and the Red King crab um, uh, season because that uh, what we're seeing in the crab market was uh, th- this this jump is in part predicated on this this uh, this this cancellation. It's the first time the Bristol Bay Red King crab season has been canceled in over 25 years. Um, and it was basically regulators at the Alaska Department of Fish and Game and the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, did uh, trawl surveys and looked at the, the biomass, um, and it was just below the threshold for what, they, uh, for what they've set for opening a fishery. Um, now, that in itself is a big, big deal. Uh, obviously, king crab is something that Everybody wants on their table. Uh, when you talk about Dungeness crab, um, uh, yes, it's it's I think getting more of a name for itself in part because of these king crab shortages. But there's nothing quite like having a king crab leg there on your plate, and that's globally. That's why it's a, a species that does very very well in Russia. That's why it does. Uh, why Norway now um, has its own uh, fishery there. It's actually an invasive fishery, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Russian scientists uh, actually tried to get it to grow on the East Coast and brought it over from the Pacific. And whoops, it spread all over the place uh, across Norway. And now even into the UK, I was just reading. Um, but let me talk a bit about the king crab prices because we're, we're looking at a massive, uh, a massive, massive spike in king crab prices that tells you kind of the overall pressure. This is even before the cancellation. So let's just look back to, to 19, uh, or rather, let's go back to 2002, just so we get a nice 20-year uh, span here. So ex-vessel price per pound, uh, that's the amount paid to the fishermen. In 2002, it was $6.21 a pound for Red King Crab. Uh, now... Uh, going to 2020, which is the most recent statistics we have available, it was $11.89. That's paid to the fishermen. That's not what you see in the grocery stores. So we're talking about uh, double what it was 20 years ago and really no signs that it's going to slow down. The trend I'm looking here in front of me is uh, going right through the roof. Um, so is there, do you think, John, I mean, is there any... What is sort of the limit on what people will pay for for crab here? Um, why do you think you said you had a theory? Why do you think people continue to sort of shell? Sorry, shell out this kind of. <laughs> I, that was unintentional. Why do you think people tend to uh, are shelling out this kind of money, and will they continue to do so? Yeah, I don't know. You know, every price has, every uh, buyer has a limit after a while. I mean, and, you know, $12 a pound X vessel, that puts it in a retail store for ooh, 24 to 30 probably a pound. And that's a lot. But it's 
interesting to note this surge in crab sales since the pandemic because at least for the first part of the pandemic i'll say the first year almost um food service was shut down and most crab if you go most people don't fix crab at home they go out and they have it at dinner especially king crab um and of course snow crab is is really big with red lobster and some of the chains so you, you you know, I sat there and I thought last night, I'm like, well, why would it take off given that one of its main channels was shut down? And then I thought to myself, well, how hard is it to to fix crab? It's simple. I mean, if you go and you buy a crab leg at, at the grocery store and bring it home, virtually all you have to do is thaw it out. It's ready to go. It's cooked. And, you know, there's some fresh crab, but most of it's all cooked and and ready to go. I mean, you can heat it, you can steam, you can do some other preparations with it, but it is probably the easiest seafood in the world <laughs> to cook or to prepare. I mean, literally. So I think, you know, you keep hearing all this about consumers finally learn how to cook seafood at home. I think a lot of them finally discovered how easy crab is to do at home and, and they bought the heck out of it. The, the retail data proves it. Um, so uh, but now we're at that point you saw uh, at the in 2021 sales and crabs softened a little bit compared to 2020. They were still above 2019 considerably, but you can see probably now we're reaching a point where maybe, you know, the prices are too high. I mean, I, I, the prices I see in the grocery store are to me, they're very, you know, they're very high, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, you can just do a quick online search and see what people are charging for crab. Uh, and it's um, what I would consider obscene. But then again, like you said, John, people are out there buying it. So people are willing to pay this amount, amount of money. Um, okay, good, good, on the, good on the crab sellers if that works. Yeah, I mean, if you want to have a cool meal at home, you know, maybe something special. I mean, even if it's, say, $27 a pound for king crab, let's just say. I, I don't know what it is right now. But, um, you know, you can get two, maybe three crab legs for that. And crab is really rich. I mean, if it's just uh, you and another person, for example, two or three crab legs is more than enough if you have other you know sides and all that nonsense but yeah no i i, I don't know it's very interesting i really want to call some some people who study um the retail sales and ask this question about crab um but that's for another another week yeah it, the interesting thing too as i said even though there is a or, or largely because there is a shortage what you're seeing now is um, global markets really heating up too. Uh, and so the, our, our Russian correspondent Evgeny Vovchenko wrote a good story uh, about this um, late last year. He interviewed uh, some of the Russian uh, Far East crab uh, uh, crabbers. And what's very interesting is they see the shortfall in Bristol Bay. They see the shortfall on the U.S. market um, and they're just going right after it. And um, they are, are, are exporting a lot of product into the United States, trying to, uh, trying to take advantage of that. Um, and you're, you're just seeing that everywhere. Again, it's, it's a market that 
Um, for Norway, for example, taking an invasive species, uh, now it's a, it's a, a managed, um, very profitable fishery um, just because the demand is so high for crab around the world. And so you're seeing all of these species that um, have traditionally not been considered premium crab um, fetching a, a lot more money, things like apelio and snow crab. A step down, I think most chefs would say, and most people would say from um, from king crab, but same um, big price pressure as people um, go out and and, and want to get more of it. So, um, good times if you're if you're harvesting crab, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I, I mentioned the invasion of king crabs in in Norway. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, and crab is certainly a part of this, is uh, changes because of climate change. Um, crabs, you know, crawl along the bottom of the ocean. They uh, move away from conditions they don't like. They move toward uh, toward food sources, and all these shifts mean that um, that you're seeing um, changes in their habitat, just as you are with uh, other other fish. And uh, and uh, and aquaculture as well, which is something that is kind of not really discussed when you look at climate change, at least broadly. But we certainly paid a lot of attention to it. Um, one of the uh, one of the big things that um, that that impacts aquaculture in terms of climate change are algal blooms. So when these algal blooms uh, happen, um, they're they're uh, amplified by warmer waters and sunlight. They can float right in the water column where um, salmon, for example, and in this case, we are going to talk about salmon, where salmon are uh, in their net pens, and they'll just go right through a water column. They, they get trapped in the gills, essentially suffocate the salmon, and they can kill off hundreds of thousands of fish just like that. And so it's an issue that we've seen um, sometimes take just a devastating toll on the industry. So over the past few years, we've seen some um, just kind of stunning outbreaks um, in, in Chile just uh, a few years ago, um, about $800 million in estimated losses from uh, a massive outbreak, around 100,000 metric tons of, of salmon um, was killed off. Um, and just a couple of years ago in Norway, another massive bloom that, um, that led to uh, tens of millions of dollars in losses. And I think around 15,000 metric tons of, of salmon was lost there. So it's something that the industry, uh, I think, is, um, is quite concerned about. This year in Chile, Part of why it was um, this year's um, algal bloom um, uh, in Chile that just popped up, part of why it was such a concern, not only did it kill around 3,500 metric tons of salmon uh, at several major salmon farming companies, Blue Mar, Salmonas Astral, Comanchaca, and Aquachile, not only did it cause those losses, but this is very, very early. Um, so the uh, Chile Salmon Council, Joanna Davidovich, she's the executive director. She said that's the big concern right now among the industry is that it happened so early. But, um, but John, we've also talked to people about some of the mitigation that is, is uh, mitigation techniques that, that are available. There's new technologies. 
Um, what what do we know about some of the the ways that monitoring or some of this this tech can can help salmon farmers out, and how far along is it? Yeah, before I before I get there, I just wanna I just wanna put this all in perspective because you know you talked about climate change and its impact across multiple species, salmon, crab, etc. You know, <clears throat> you and I have been writing about seafood for for a while. It is now at the point where there is, and this blows my mind. I was talking to uh, John Evans, our reporter in Brazil, who wrote this story. It blows my mind that we now have an algal bloom season. I mean, wrap your head around that a little bit. Like, we didn't have this. I don't. I don't remember it five years ago. Maybe it was just coming on. I, I certainly don't remember it 10, 15 years ago. We now have a season <laughs> for algal blooms in Chile. And, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It just struck me as really bizarre that it's it's come to these types of levels as far as climate change is concerned. But to answer your question, you know, with with seasons of algal blooms, companies have to address this. They have to figure out how to mitigate uh, the damage uh, because, like you said, there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake here. So, you know, there's a lot of money going into some preventative measures to be able to predict when the blooms are coming and maybe adjust operations somehow, if possible. Um, there's monitoring, uh, uh, new technology for monitoring the oxygen in the tanks. And and there's a bubble, it, it's called a bubble barrier system where they can actually, um, you know, kind of prevent the, the impact of, uh, of the bloom by using uh, what they call a bubble curtain and basically tiny little bubbles that kind of block, block things. So there's, and there's a lot of money, investment money going in this direction. You, you know, a lot of the funds out there and they're you're investing small amounts, I guess, um, relatively, but you know, everybody is looking for some sort of answer to this. So, you know, hopefully we don't end up at a stage where certain parts of Chile or Norway or anywhere become, um, you know, where you just can't farm there anymore because of this. I, I, you know, I don't want to suggest we're there by any means, and I hope that never comes. But, you know, we have to consider that, you know, places in the ocean that we probably took for granted for a long time as being bountiful and, uh, you know, from a harvest point of view or a farming point of view, you know, that that may not always be the case. You know, digging into our archives here, John, uh, and, and looking at, at when we first started writing about algal blooms and first mentioned them, it's about in 2000 that, uh, that we reported our first story on an algal bloom in Chile, um, took out took out some um, quite a quite a few fish you know not not a massive massive amount um, we reported in 1999 there was one that uh, led to the loss of about 300,000 salmon and this one in 2000 was around 150,000 what strikes me though is that we we haven't really come very far uh, in mitigation techniques you know even at that time they there was discussions of okay we'll put polyethylene aprons in uh, to keep the algae away. 
will use compressed air in the same way that you would in a, a fish tank. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it seems like it's a problem that, um, as John wrote in his story, one of the experts there said, it's not something that is high on the priority list. It's probably going to get higher, but when you have uh, so many different diseases that that uh, salmon deal with, uh, you also have sea lice, which is the number one issue. Um, Algal blooms seem like they're sort of down on the uh, lower on the list, but it probably should be lifted up quite a bit higher on the lift, uh, list, given what you just mentioned about there now being an algal bloom season that rolls around. And, um, you know, every summer when the, the weather starts heating up, it appears that, um, that uh, companies can really uh, expect um, that they're going to experience some losses unless they have some mitigation techniques. So, you know, it's, um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what people come up with. Um, like you said, there's, there's different types of technologies, these, uh, bubble curtains and things. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know to what extent the industry is, is going to be willing to invest in these, uh, in these more expensive technologies at this time. Yeah, I imagine, I'm surprised too that uh, the you know we reported on that almost 20 years ago. But I think the difference is those were probably more or less random events as opposed to now um, something that's become more predictable. And I, I suppose you know the investment in those technologies you mentioned are going to be a function of the frequency and severity of algal blooms. If that should, if those two um, variables should continue to increase, um, then the urgency to address them will increase, obviously, and the investment in technologies to do that. So um, hopefully that, you know, hopefully we don't ever get there, but it sure feels like, um, you know, that we may be headed in that direction to some degree. Well, it's going to spur some of these developments in, for example, closed containment production, yeah. offshore production. And, and again, I think that's, that's, you are seeing necessity being the mother of invention on uh, some of these, uh, some of this tech that seems advanced and it seems, um, wow, you know, we're, we're going to move to these, you know, offshore systems that are massive out there floating on the, on the, on the water or below the surface you know, we're going to be moving to those much quicker, I think, than many, uh, both inside and outside of the industry, think because of these types of uh, of events. Um, and uh, and and that's um, it's good in the sense that mm, it seems companies are beginning to recognize that it's good to start investing in this technology now rather than waiting until the conditions become um, much more complicated for raising in nearshore net pens. I know, but think about that statement. You just, I mean, you're, you're doing this in effect because the, the system you've been using since the eighties is maybe, maybe I'll say maybe, maybe breaking down uh, because of climate change at a rate that, you know, 
you're not going to be able to ex- use it uh, the way you could. I, I mean, that's getting a little ahead of ourselves probably, but but your point is the point, right? You're looking to go further offshore to avoid, you know, sea lice and uh, water temperature changes. And, and, you know, it is what it is. It's hard to argue that we're looking for ways to um, work around the problems that seem to be intensifying, you know? It's it's very interesting that climate change is going to be such a driver of how the industry looks, not just not just from a, a technological point of view, but when you look at these investments that companies have to make, they're massive capital investments. And so what that will mean is the smaller companies that are operating in conventional net pens, um, they will not be able to afford this kind of uh, mitigation technology. There's only so much that insurers are going to put up with uh, as time goes on. <laughs> I think, you know, if you're uh, if your house is built uh, next door to a volcano, there's only so much <laughs> volcano insurance that you, that a, a company is going to give you. So I, I think that um, I think that's what's going to be really really interesting is just how climate change will have the ability to completely reshape industries. Aquaculture, aquaculture in the ocean anyway, is one of those. Um, and again, it spurs other technologies and other, other changes. For example, land-based salmon, which um, continues to at least attract a lot of capital. Part of why there is a case to be made, I think, for land-based salmon is exactly what we're talking about, is that climate change is going to force companies to change the way that uh, that they're used to that they're used to raising fish well let's wrap it up there just a reminder february 17th is our shipping and logistics digital event you can register for that at intrafishevents.com we'll be bringing some experts together to give a look at what the industry might be able to expect in shipping and logistics in the coming year. There's been so many uh, hiccups and issues and challenges, so our experts are gonna try to shed some light on, on what, uh, what things are gonna look like over the next year. All right, folks, thanks for joining, and we'll speak to you next week.